The reading today is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who's, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you uh, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are attentive. Give us minds to uh, comprehend and imagine what uh, you have in store for us. God, would coming and listening to your word not just be um, a rote exercise, but like children gathered to hear uh, the voice of a father who loves us speaking. Would you help us to lean in and hear your voice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you remember the myth of uh, Sisyphus, the Greek uh, myth of Sisyphus? Sisyphus was, um, according to Greek myth, the king of Corinth who uh, twice cheated death. And because he twice eluded death, he was um, sentenced by the Greek gods to roll a boulder up a hill. And every time he would get to the top of the hill, uh, the boulder would roll all the way back down to the bottom, and so this was from his, his punishment, um, was to be stuck in this kind of continual act of futility. Uh, the myth, in some ways, I think, has become the ultimate picture of human futility. Uh, students of literature, philosophers, sociologists, have for centuries studied Sisyphus, this tragic character, uh, searching for insights into the human condition, um, one of whom, Albert Camus, the great existentialist author, had this to say about Sisyphus's life. He wrote, the gods had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly rolling a rock to the top of a mountain once the stone would fall back of its own weight. They had thought with some reason that there is no more dreadful punishment than futile and hopeless labor. Sisyphus' scorn of the gods, his hatred of death, and his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which his whole being was exerted towards accomplishing nothing. This is the price that must be paid for the passions of this earth. Oh. <laughs> Does that resonate at all? <laughs> Spending the whole of life exerting great effort in order to accomplish nothing at all is the very definition of futility. 
And uh, sometimes that's what life feels like, whether it's kind of in our professional lives, the work we do, whether it's in our relational lives, whether with uh, family members, maybe as parents, um, maybe sometimes in our faith, uh, in, our, in our relationship with God, with his people, with the church, it can feel like we are putting in a tremendous amount of energy and effort and toil only to have it roll back to the bottom of the hill. This morning we are wrapping up this series that we've been in over the last six weeks, Generations on Mission, where we've been looking at one of the Psalms and applying it to each of the six living generations. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 127, which speaks to the reality that life often appears futile. And it points us towards God as the one who is the antidote towards that futility. And I think it's really important that we hear all, uh, that we all hear what the psalm has to say about the futility of life, but it's especially important for us to hear um, this pers- God's perspective on the futility of life as we think about the youngest generation in our midst. So this morning we are thinking in particular about Generation Alpha. Generation Alpha was born, has been born, uh, children born since 2013. The oldest Gen Alpha uh, kids are uh, 10 years old. Um, You might not even have heard the term Gen Alpha before. I hadn't, I don't think, known that there was a a generation called Generation Alpha until a couple months ago when I started looking into this. And and I think there's a real possibility that in 10 years there there will be a different name for this generation. They're only called Gen Alpha because they come after Gen Z. And they are not old enough to have earned like another name for themselves yet. Uh, they're not even all born yet. Uh, maybe only a half to two thirds of Gen Alpha have even been born. Um, Gen Alpha is the first generation that's been born entirely in the 21st century. There are a couple of um, fa- uh, things facing this generation that I think are likely to shape their lives. Uh, One of those is the reality that um, birth rates in developed countries uh, are continuing to fall, while at the same time, life expectancy is getting longer and longer. And so what that means is that Gen Alpha um, will begin to come of age and enter adulthood around the year 2030. By the time they start becoming adults and entering the workforce, the human population is expected to be just under 9 billion people. And the world will have the highest ever proportion of people over the age of 60. And so if you put all of those things together, what that means is that Gen Alpha is going to shoulder the burden of caring for an aging population. Studies are suggesting that allergies, obesity, health problems related to screen time have become increasingly common for uh, this generation of of children. One study estimates that Generation Alpha will experience between two and seven times as many extreme weather events as somebody born in 1960 uh, because of of, uh, climate change. Um, especially kind of heat-related, heat-wave-related weather events. Um, This is interesting, I think, however. uh, Okay, so that could paint a picture of, okay, you've been saying for like three weeks it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. 
it's interesting, though, that uh, scholars who study uh, generational theory talk about a four-generation cycle that, that tends to continue itself. And if that's the case, what that would mean is that we will be living in the Western world in a time of kind of crisis until about 2030, and then things will begin to change. And that would mean that uh, Generation Alpha would be entering the workforce on a positive note on a time when um, it feels like we've hit the bottom and, and life is sort of climbing back towards uh, you know, positive goodness, let's just say, unlike the three generations that preceded them. A hundred years ago, Max Weber, or Max Weber, depending on uh, who, whose class you're sitting in, I guess, who is the fa- considered the father of modern sociology, predicted that as the world modernizes, that religious authority would diminish in all aspects of social life and governance. That secularization would become the dominant way of thinking and believing. And for, for about a hundred years, People have assumed that as the West especially, but as, as, as cultures become more prosperous, they become more secular. Recently, um, scholars are calling that secularization hypothesis into question. History doesn't seem to be bearing that out. Real, rather, what's happening is this, the center is being hollowed out. And so devout believers, whether Christians or otherwise, are, are continue and won't, aren't likely to go away. And at the same time, there is um, an, kind of an entrenched secular culture in the West that has captured much of the mindset and institutions that shape um, the culture and the rest of the world. And so what that means for Generation Alpha is that they're going to be growing up in a time where... Um, let's just put it like this, Christian values are not going to be reinforced by the culture that they live in. And so there are still gonna be millions and millions of Christians in this country and elsewhere, billions around the world. But these Christians will be growing up in a time when their faith um, or values of Christian faith like the existence of God and the reality of moral absolutes will not be reinforced by the culture at large. And so what I think that means for us is that if we want to raise up a generation of 10-year-olds and younger in our church, we can't do that on autopilot if we're seeking to raise a generation of Christians that are going to be resilient and that are going to walk with Jesus. It's not something that's just going to happen by default. The increasing rate of change and increasing degree of complexity in our world will require that the church develop a posture of agility and resilience. So the question, in some ways, as we look at this psalm, is this, how will we build a resilient generation, a resilient church for this generation? How will we build a church that will enable uh, our children and grandchildren to avoid the futility of life? Psalm 127 speaks to that question. And I think it's a really great way to conclude this series because it helps us to think about where we're going from here. And I just want to say my hope for this series has been in many ways to help us as a congregation, Trinity, begin to think about what does the future hold for us specifically? And what does it look like for us to develop a vision for our future together as a church? And so... uh, this is just a kind of a, a roadmap of where, what we're going to be doing over the next uh, several, couple of months here. Uh, 
next Sunday I will be out of the pulpit after that. We're going to start, it'll be Lent, and we're going to begin a series called The Scandal of the Cross, looking at the strangeness but the centrality of the cross of Christ as we move towards Easter. But then after Easter, we're going we're gonna to begin a series um, which in some ways will be like a part two of this as we begin thinking specifically what, who is um, tr- God calling Trinity to be and what will our life together look like as we move into the future. Psalm 127 speaks uh, and kind of primes us for that conversation because it speaks of the often frustrating and futile reality of life. Uh, when life feels like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill only for it to roll back down again. Psalm 127 shows us the futility of life and all that we build apart from God. Uh, Psalm 127 shows us how futile it would be to spend many of us uh, 50, 60, 70 plus years walking with Jesus and then to fail to pass the baton of faith to our children and our grandchildren. It shows us that a life of meaning and purpose is one in which we partner with God in his work in our world. And it shows us that ultimately it is God who, who gives us rest and who gives us a hope for the future because he himself is the antidote to the futility of life. So would you look with me at the, at the psalm here, Psalm 127, and the first thing that I want to highlight for us is that this psalm really highlights for us the futility or the, the danger of futility. The danger of futility. So what, what are we talking about when we're talking about the, the futility? The, the Oxford Dictionary defines futility as pointlessness or uselessness. None of us want our efforts to be futile, to be pointless, to be useless. If, if you notice, if, um, it's not printed in the, uh, in, in, the, in the text we printed in the worship guide, but if you were looking at your Bible here, the, the title that's a part of the original Hebrew for Psalm 127 says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. And, and what that means, probably, is that, that Solomon, um, the third king of Israel, is the, is the one who wrote this psalm. Uh, and three times in the first couple verses, he talks about, uses the word vain, or refers to the vanity of life. And so what we know about Solomon in the, in the other you know, book of the Bible, he wrote the, the book of Ecclesiastes. What he's doing in Ecclesiastes is, is he's talking about uh, the vanity of life, that, that life is like a vapor, that it's like a mist that just... You know, like the, you wake up in the morning and there's this kind of mist on the central coast and then the sun comes out and, and burns it off and it's just, it's just gone. It's, it's talking about our effort and our work um, will not lead to success, will not last, will not endure. It, it just kind of evaporates. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. A life of substance, Solomon is saying, is one where in whatever field or area of work we find ourselves, whether that's professionally or personally, in life, we partner with God in his work, resulting uh, in triune God-exalting, spirit-empowered humanity, enriching lives, culture, and society as part of uh, the creation mandate that God gives to Adam and in, uh, in the first chapters of Genesis to, um, to cultivate the whole earth so that it brings glory to God. That, that, that's, what it, that's what it ought to look like. 
There are many ingredients and parts to that work as we partner with God in his mission in the world, but the psalmist is not saying our work doesn't effort, our, our, our effort doesn't matter. He's saying we are going to be doing work, but unless we are doing that work in and in partnership with the Lord, unless the Lord is in it, it is a mist, it is a vapor. It just rolls back down on its own. The word that the psalmist says, as I mentioned, this word vanity, like, like Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, is a, is a vapor mist that walks, wafts away. And so what he's saying is that a futile life is one in which, sure, we may be involved in significant work and relationships, and we may build things that are uh, new and innovative and, and fantastic and impressive, and yet at the end of the day, it's a vapor unless the Lord is in it. And he gives three examples. He, he talks about the futility of building in verse 1a. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Solomon uh, was, the, was the king under whom the temple of God in Jerusalem was finally built. And so building the house uh, is probably a reference there to building the temple. And uh, the temple, was the temple? The temple was both a sign of God's blessing and presence, but it was also the means of continuing and maintaining a relationship with God and uh, in his plan for his people. So he, he's saying you can build this beautiful edifice uh, that's so grand that people would travel from you know, thousands of miles to come and look at it and say, wow. And yet, unless God is in it, it's a waste. It's an empty structure. So the futility of building something, but also the futility of vigilance in, in, in the second half of verse 1. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep wake in vain. So the idea here, of course, is the watchman sitting on the, 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 you know, the tower and the wall of the city, staying up at night, keeping watch, uh, keeping watch lest enemies come from afar and break in and, and overpower the city. The problem, though, is that several things can occur, right? A watchman, I mean, a watchman could fall asleep in the middle of the night and not notice when an enemy comes. Or a watchman could be fooled and let an enemy in. Um, or even if they do everything right, a watchman can only see that an enemy is approaching and warn the people in the city, but the watchman can't actually do anything to fend them away. And so what this is saying is you can be on guard against every danger and threat and be powerless when you see them actually coming. Ultimately, what is needed is that the one who doesn't slumber nor sleep, whose eyes are always upon those he loves, is the one who is watching over us. So the futility of building, the futility of vigilance, and then the futility of worry. Verse 2 it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. I think that's a great phrase, the, the eat, um, eating the bread of anxious toil. That's what 3 a.m. feels like, right? Where, you know, no matter if I've convinced, I've kind of tamped down my anxiety all day long, it comes up at 3 a.m. and wakes you up in the middle of the night and you've got this pit in your stomach and then you get to eat what has been produced by your anxiety, eating the bread of anxious toil. Working long hours, stressing over the results. He's talking about a heart that believes that 
our efforts and our diligence and our activity is what will ultimately bring success in our lives. He's talking about the, the mistaken belief that it's ultimately our hard work and our sweat that will be what accomplishes God's mission or brings our lives meaning. And though we all know that worry can't accomplish anything, knowing that worry can't accomplish anything doesn't actually prevent us from worrying, does it? The difficulty is that we're living in a culture where, where what, our, what our culture has done is it has taken the best and brightest minds and paid them enormous sums of money to build technologies that prey on our anxiety. That's the world that we live in, where the fear of mess, missing out is baked into our marketing and our media and our technology, right? <laughs> it's tragic. It fuels the sense that we're always falling behind. It fuels the sense that there's always more to be done and somebody doing it better. And it masks the truth that so much of the whole thing just doesn't even matter. It's a waste of time. Apart from God, we spend our lives building things that evaporate the moment that we're gone. It's futile and we know it, at least in our least guarded moments. It's why anxiety wakes us up in the middle of the night. When we let our guard down, when we then eat the bread of anxious toil. Interesting, I was looking this week, uh, studies indicate, they are about the sleep habits of Americans, indicate that basically none of us is sleeping well. <laughs> One in three Americans are sleep-deprived. 70% report insufficient sleep at least one night a month. And half say that they feel sleepy during the day more than three days a week. One in 20 Americans reports that they have fallen asleep behind the wheel in the past month. I mean, think about that the next time you get on the freeway. <laughs> one in 20 Americans has drifted off while driving in the last month. I mean, there's more than 20 of us in this room, you guys. <laughs> okay, here's the really scary part about these statistics. Most of them were recorded in 2021, the time when you didn't have to leave your house and were not sleeping well. So it's about more than physical rest. It's about the anxiety that is bubbling up within us because of the futility of life. One of the great ironies that I think we haven't really even begun to wrestle with is this, that the more materially prosperous a society becomes, um, the more anxious we become, the longer hours we work. And I'm saying all of this to say this is the world that Generation Alpha is growing up in. This is the, the world where, where futility of life without God is the water that we swim in, that our children just think is normal. Often it shows up for us in the middle of the night. So this is the danger of futility, but the psalm shows us also not just the reality of the futility of life, but, but the antidote to it. And, and there are two things, but what I really want you to see is that God's antidote to the futility of life 
is intensely tangible and practical. And I, and I say this because this, I think it would be really easy to do this at this point, this kind of like um, pietistic pastoral jujitsu move on you that's like, so whatever you're doing, just remember that Jesus is with you in it. And, um, and it, it goes something like this, you know, what, whatever you're doing at work, with family, relationship, etc., you just have to remember that you do it all unto the Lord, and if you have Jesus in your heart and mind, uh, then your labor is not in vain, and you won't ris- wrestle with the anxiety that is crippling our society. And that is not true. That is not true. Because the psalm is absolutely pointing out the futility of life without God, but the solution isn't, now just go think about that. (laughs) And just remember in your head that Jesus is in your heart. The antidote is not what you are going to go do. The antidote is what God gives. And that's what the psalm points out here in the second half. And God gives us two tangible gifts And the first gift that we see in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, is that God gives rest. It is in vain that you rise up early and that you go go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, but God gives to his beloved sleep. (laughs) I usually sleep terribly on Saturday night. But I've been thinking about this all week. Uh, This morning was the first time I woke up to my alarm on a Sunday morning in months. God gives to his beloved sleep. I think there's a lot that we can say to unpack what does that mean, but um, my friend Scott Sauls tweeted this, and and I think this just, um, this describes it better than like, what does it mean by sleep? Exegeting the passage. Scott Saul says this. Do you ever feel guilty about, salt, uh, about falling asleep while praying? How do you feel when a child falls asleep in your lap? How much more must your heavenly father feel about you when this happens? Isn't that beautiful? God gives to his beloved sleep. When we worry, it compels us to sleepless nights and a frenetic pace of life or meaningless efforts that accomplish very little. One of the tangible signs that God is at work in us is that we have an ability, yes, to work hard and do well the things that he's called us to, but then we can walk away and we can rest. Ashley and I have been watching this um, Uh, I think it's an NBC show called New Amsterdam that's about a public hospital in New York. And we started watching this because a friend of mine told me, if you watch uh, this show um, and you think about the hospital as a metaphor for the church, it's really beautiful. And um, so Max Goodwin is the main character. He's the medical director. He's revolutionizing the hospital so that it can do more good. And the hospital is dedicated to providing necessary services to anybody who needs them uh, without, uh, even if they don't have insurance. It's not a real hospital, by the way. It's fiction. But you find out in the first Um, episode that Max, this new medical director, is doing all these amazing things, but he has cancer. And um, the doctor is terrified of becoming a patient. And so he puts off treatment longer and longer. 
And so you see this guy who's running around and he's solving all sorts of problems. He's finding uh, creative and courageous ways to help his patients, but he won't follow his own advice and receive the care that he's offering to everybody else. And why am I telling you this? Well, because my friend told me this is a picture of the church. And at first, when I was starting to watch this, I I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's a picture of the church that's doing all this good, tangible service towards others in the world, telling people about the goodness and love and grace of God. And then we were watching an episode last night, and I realized, oh, but maybe it's also about the church and the person leading the church are not willing to receive the care that they're offering to others. That we talk about the goodness and love and grace of God, but we fail to receive it ourselves. The outcome of Jesus' work in our lives, his saving work on the cross, is to give us peace with God so we can rest. I mean, think about Jesus says this in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the ways that Jesus gives his people, that God gives his people rest, is that he has baked into the rhythm of life and creation periods of rest. You know, we we know that there are seasons, we're entering soon into a season of life and abundance as the spring comes and new life is going to sprout forth, but then we know there are times where the ground lays fallow, where the, the, the earth needs to rest. We know that God tells his people, he gives his people a day of rest. And yet how many of us uh, view the weekly Sabbath Lord's Day as uh, a gift that God gives us? We talk about, oh, I have to do all of this stuff. Uh, you know, if, if we have to do something, we are not free We are enslaved. God gives his people rest. The Lord literally put a whole day of the week into our lives as a symbol and a blessing to to rest. He gives us rest, not just to cease from physical activity, but we need that rest in order to hit reset, uh, to retune and reorient and renew our lives to the Lord who has everything under his control. God gives his people rest. But the second tangible gift, the third point that, um, in, the, in the sermon that we see here is that um, there is the gift of offspring. The gift of offspring, the, the second gift that God gives as an antidote to the futility of life is children. And I know you might be thinking, uh, children and rest don't <laughs> go together. and I hear you (laughs) and yet (laughs) listen to verse 3 and 4 behold children are a heritage from the Lord the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hands of a warrior the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth listen I know um, there are so many ways culturally that churches can take those two verses and just make it really weird (laughs) Okay, let's just acknowledge that. (laughs) But to get this, I think what we have to understand is that this psalm is written in the context of ancient Israel. The context of ancient Israel is this. Um, Nobody has a 401k. 
There's no social welfare system. When you arrive in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, you haven't spent the last decades building equity into a property that you can now tap into. You have likely spent most of your life in an agrarian society doing manual labor to provide for your family. And eventually, you get to the place where your body simply cannot keep up that effort anymore. And it's, I mean, that's, that is the very definition of futility, isn't it? You've spent 50, 60, 70 years doing work only to get to the place of saying, I physically can't do this anymore. And you're, at, you're like in, at a dead end. What do you do? And so it's in that context, you know, if you're, if you're going to get to that point and not find your life to be an exercise in futility, what do you rely on? You rely on your children. You rely on, you need children. If, you, if you're going to thrive in old age in that context, you've got to have kids. And, you know, given infant mortality rates in, in the ancient world, you need to have a lot of kids. And so what Solomon is saying is that God in his kindness gives the gift of children as an antidote to the futility of life, showing us that while we will eventually pass away, what we have built will live on as we hand it down to our children. Our children, both our, our physical children, but also our children in the faith. Those, there are many of us who, who don't have and, and may never have uh, physical children, and yet we all... Um, work together to parent the uh, one another, really. That's what discipleship is in some ways, uh, husbanding one another. So our children and our children in the faith are blessings which come from the Lord and give us hope that our labors will not die with us, that we will have somebody who will carry on and advance our work and the mission of God when we're gone. So we see that physical and spiritual children are a powerful blessing from the Lord. By the logic of this psalm, the futility, or you could say the lack thereof, of our current spirituality will be borne out in the church that we leave for Gen Z and Gen Alpha, for our children and grandkids. Are we building an edifice but forgetting the Lord? If so, the ones who are really going to bear the brunt of that is not just us now, it's our children and our grandchildren. It's through children that God gives his people rest. Just as it was through physical children in ancient Israel that God provided rest to counter the futility that would otherwise come with age, so now it is through our children, both physical and those we parent in the faith, those to whom we pass the baton of God's mission that our work will continue. We hope against the futility of the world by hoping for offspring, which God gives as a gift. And ultimately, we see this promise filled, this gift given as God gives a son to us. From the earliest um, chapters in the Bible, in Genesis 3, um, the moment that sin enters into our world through Adam and Eve's rebellion, their sin, God says that futility will accomplish, uh, futility will accompany our work. Right? That, that's the curse that comes as a result of sin. But just as, uh, just as soon as God has said to Adam that uh, his work will be done in toil and sweat and futility, 
He promises that he will send a son who will crush the head of the serpent and the curse of sin will be broken. And while creation groans in agony and futility, God in his perfect time eventually sends his son, Jesus, to break that curse. In his life and in his work, we see Jesus perfectly carrying out God's good law. And we also see Jesus as the one who can find real rest. You think about Jesus having labored hard as he was teaching the crowds and then he got into a boat and they put out into the Sea of Galilee and the waves were crashing, filling the boat and his disciples, most of whom were fishermen. It wasn't their first rodeo, uh, to mix metaphors. <laughs> Say, God, Jesus, Lord, we're gonna, we're gonna die here. And Jesus is asleep, this head on a pillow. How can that be? Jesus, having worked hard teaching, is asleep in the boat, content knowing that his father is watching him. But ultimately, there's no way to overcome the futility of this world just by staying one step ahead and outpacing the futility of life. And so Jesus goes to the cross, pulling the futility of life upon himself and swallowing it whole. In doing so, he is breaking the curse of sin and death, giving his life as a gift to us. In Jesus, God overcomes the futility of life, giving us his son who purchases for us eternal rest. That's the good news. So what does this mean for us as we think about our role in parenting and shepherding and discipling the youngest amongst us. Well, three things that I want to leave you with briefly. And, and the first is this. Is, is, this is really a question, but what is your hope when you think about Generation Alpha? Those who are 10 or younger. Uh, you may be in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but when you see um, you know, Anselm or Eleanor, or Harriet, or Jack, or Mary, or others, you know, squeezing past you on Sunday morning. What are your hopes for them? You may be their parents, their grandparents. It's good and normal for us to have dreams for our kids, um, hopes that we envision them growing into. Can I just remind you that unless the Lord is in their lives, it is all in vain. Unless the Lord is in their lives, all the other good things are like a vapor. They may be athletes, professionals, thought leaders, influencers, yet without Jesus in a hundred years. That's when comedians said, all new people. <laughs> it's all gone. And so I would just like to plead with you. I know life is busy. Uh, I know that we're trying to make sure our kids have every opportunity that they are... Uh, well-balanced, but we have to prioritize the place of Jesus and his people in their lives. We have to have a vision beyond our own good when we think about uh, what God is doing at Trinity. The way that we leave a mark that lasts and that has a lasting impact that is rooted in Jesus as seen in the blessing of children and actively preparing the next generation, handing the baton of faith down to them. The upcoming generations, Generation Z and Alpha, need to be aided in understanding their faith in light of a world 
um, that often seeks to hijack the cause of Christ and his kingdom. That means we have to prepare our children to live in a world uh, where they understand how the gospel connects to human sexuality, how the gospel connects to justice, stewardship, generosity, marriage, family, mercy, goodness, grace, all of these things constantly being redefined by the world that we live in. What is our hope for them? Secondly, we have to build a resilient church to pass on to this generation. We want to raise up children who aren't just adept at avoiding life's difficulties, but bounce back in the face of the futility of life. Uh, A couple years ago, I read this amazing book by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock called Faith for Exiles. And honestly, we should seriously think about getting a group together and reading through this book together because what what they're doing is um, qualitative research, trying to get at the heart of what does it look like to live with a resilient sort of faith. And, and they say that resilient Christians do five things. They live with a sense of mission. They, they, they understand that they are partnering with Jesus in his work in the world. They have a strong belief in the reality of God's work in the world. They feel supported by their church when it comes to living out their faith. And they have more confidence in what they believe and can express it to others. I... Um, in, in this book, they, they share this story about an eight-year-old boy named Keaton. And Keaton, uh, who lives next to one of the neighbors, put together this slide for the 10 things that he wants to do in his life. And this is what Keaton, the eight-year-old, says. He says, I want to grow up to be a nice Christian man. I want to get a nice wife. I want to get a good job, one that I like. I want to have two kids, each boys, two years apart. I want to grow as close as I can get to God. I want to make more and more friends as I grow. I want to work hard in school, believe in God wherever I go, teach my kids about God and help them live their lives as best they can and not give up on life. It's an eight-year-old. He says he either wants to be an engineer or somebody who builds Legos at Legoland. (laughs) But here's the question that they, they kind of present us with. If this family showed up at your church, would Keaton, as an aspiring engineer or Lego designer, find a place that he could be mentored and developed into that kind of person? Or would that kind of mentoring only happen by accident? Do we have a strategy for developing a resilient church for Generation Alpha? Thirdly, let me just finish with this. Will you commit to pray? Would you commit to pray for this generation? Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. We must labor, but unless God joins us, we can do nothing of value. Would you commit to praying that God would build this generation? Let me say this. Some of you have asked me about this or mentioned this, and if you're on social media, you've seen that there's been this discussion about a revival that has begun at Asbury um, University in in Kentucky and you know there's all kinds of people trying to talk about is this real or is this not real I just want to point out that I think three weeks ago I preached on the psalm where we're crying out to God God would you revive us again and then that night I went home 
And I saw that uh, Tim Keller had published an article, not like in the Gospel Coalition or something like that, but in the Atlantic Monthly, laying out why he thinks America is primed and ready for revival. The Atlantic Monthly, the Atlantic published that. Would you pray that God would revive us again? Would you pray for yourself and your generation? Because you know, hopefully, (laughs) the generational struggles that you bring to the table. But would you also commit to praying for a generation younger than you? Let me just say this, kind of on the spur of the moment. We're beginning Lent on Wednesday begins Lent. Lent is a six-week season of preparation for Easter. Maybe we need to focus on praying together. Maybe we need to figure out where do we meet, how do we have a team that prays. Maybe we need more people and other venues to do that. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. God is inviting us to partner with him. This is the hope that we have as we think about the next generation, about what the world we're leaving to them will look like. We don't really know what it will look like, but we know that we have the opportunity and the responsibility to partner with God to build a resilient church that disciples these children. Jesus has done all the work and accomplished accomplished all that is necessary for that to become a reality. He is at work in our midst, and when we join with him, our labors cannot fail. Futility will be removed, and blessing and rest will come. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you love us so much in such a way that you did not remain distant or aloof, that in the futility of the world that we live in, you have come to us. We pray that you would uh, help us to um, receive the gifts that you give, the rest that you accomplished through your work on the cross, the offspring, physical and spiritual, that you um, give to us, calling us to disciple and mentor the generations uh, coming after us. Would you use us as we reflect on all that we've um, learned in this series and shape us into a resilient church that is here to disciple those coming after us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.